The How To Academy podcast is the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. They host exclusive in-depth interviews with world-leading scholars, artists, scientists, and entrepreneurs, exploring new ideas for understanding and changing our world. Past guests include Bill Clinton, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Elizabeth Gilbert, Daniel Kahneman, Marina Abramovich, Malcolm Gladwell, Michael Lewis, Joyce Carol Oates, Gabor Mate, Chelsea Manning, and many more. That's the How To Academy podcast, to the word, not the numeral, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. Welcome to Artificiality, the podcast by Helen and Dave Edwards from Sonder Studio. We created Sonder Studio to empower humans in our complex age of machines and data. Our research-based, design-oriented consulting and education services help you and your organization work better with machines and data. You can learn more about us at GetSonder.com. Weather forecasting is fascinating. It involves making predictions in the complex natural world using a global infrastructure for people who have varying needs and desires. Some just want to know if they should carry an umbrella today. Others want to know how to prepare for a week-long trip. And then there are those who use the weather forecast to make decisions that can have significant, even critical, consequences. We also think weather forecasting is an interesting topic given the parallels to what we are experiencing in AI. Weather forecasting and AI systems are black-box prediction systems supported by a global infrastructure that is transitioning from public to private control. In weather, our satellite industry is transitioning from publicly funded and controlled to private. And in AI, the major models and data are transitioning from academia, which we would argue is essentially public given their interest in publishing and sharing knowledge, to corporate control. Given this backdrop and the fact that Helen is an avid weather forecasting nerd, we talked with Andrew Blum about his book, The Weather Machine, A Journey Inside the Forecast. The book is a fascinating narrative about how the weather forecast works based on a surprising tour of the infrastructure and people behind it. It's a great book, and we highly recommend it. Andrew Blum is an author and journalist writing about technology, infrastructure, architecture, design, cities, art, and travel. In addition to The Weather Machine, Andrew also wrote Tubes, A Journey to the Center of the Internet, which was the first ever book-length look at the physical infrastructure of the Internet all the data centers, undersea cables, and tubes filled with light. You can also find Andrew's writing in many publications and hear him talk at various conferences, universities, and corporations. At the end of our interview, we talk with Andrew about his current research, and we're very much looking forward to his next book. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. We're really looking forward to talking to you. Uh, Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it as well. Why don't you start off by telling us what inspired you to write this book? Uh, so um, this book uh, about weather forecasting, The Weather Machine, um, came out of a pretty specific experience in the fall of 2012, uh, when my previous book about the infrastructure of the internet had just come out, uh, and my son had just been born, he was about six weeks old, uh, and I was holding him, uh, sitting with my phone on Twitter, uh, was kind of as I spent most of my time doing it that season, um, when all of the kind of meteorologists that I followed began to freak out. Uh, that something called the weather models, which I didn't know anything about, were indicating that a storm, which didn't yet exist, uh, it wasn't like you couldn't go see it out in the ocean. It was really a, a function of of, you know, uh, of these weather models, um, was going to turn towards New York City. Uh, and that was the storm that then became known as sort of Hurricane or Superstorm Sandy. Uh, but what but what was absolutely remarkable to me and kind of what stuck with me was the fact that they have all, and at the same time, got news of a storm that didn't exist uh, with this incredible weather forecast that turned out to be accurate, uh, with that was itself incredibly consequential. And being a kind of writer about technology, about infrastructure, uh, being very much in the mode of right, right then of kind of looking for another big infrastructure to write about after I'd written about the internet, uh, I was completely taken aback that the weather forecast was something I you know, had more than a passing interest in, was kind of passionate about, as some of us are, uh, was, uh, you know, belonged to the system or was part of the system that I knew almost nothing about. And when I went to look to read more about the weather models, I couldn't really find anything. Uh, you know, there were, they seemed to be these ultimate black boxes, uh, black boxes that were then, you know, supported by this incredible global infrastructure. 
Uh, and so that kind of that piece, those those sort of combinations, uh, sort of uh, abiding curiosity on my own part, a kind of huge societal impact, uh, and then a global infrastructure behind it, uh, really kind of added up uh, to what seemed like a great sort of book length exploration. Uh, and the book, <laughs> the book itself, uh, I guess, came out seven years after that. So it's a bit of a bit of a journey from there. I love this book, and I'm a complete, you know, we're the nerd. Yeah, Some people talk about being passionate about weather forecasting. Yeah. You're, you're talking to one of the ultimate passionate pre- weather forecasting people here. Yeah, but, yeah. but in, uh, the thing that blew me away about it, haha, is um, exactly what you sort of described, that, you've, that this, this moment of realizing I, I read about all these models and, um, and these, the forecasts are presented to me in a variety of different formats, like really cool apps right through to the – forecasted a scientific discussion and yet I don't I hadn't taken that next step of really understanding all of these models other than the odd article that you might read in the the conversation or the New York Times about how someone you know it's time for a data update you know and so um and I found Mm -hmm. this book buried in a shelf in in Powell's in Portland um, Mm -hmm. rather than recommended to me on Amazon which is another thing that surprised me. Like, I'm going to have to go buy it again on Amazon just to, you know, correct the <laughs> algorithm so I get more. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it was a real hidden gem for me, but so fascinating and on point. And there were a few things that I thought would be really fun to just allow you to talk about from the book that um, are that that sort of struck me that I think kind of uh, are real interesting things for sort of anyone, even if they're not particularly interested in weather forecasting. I can't imagine that. I <laughs> Me neither. But um, <laughs> there, there were a few things. And one of the, the first one was just how um, how forecasting has improved in such a linear uh, way since the essentially the 70s. And uh, almost like uh, its own kind of Moore's law, if you like. And... Um, just, just how you how you thought about that yourself, and how you wrote about that, and maybe you can just sort of describe that that predictive accuracy change. I think that's really interesting. The predictive accuracy change is is kind of easily summarized as a day, a decade. So the the five day forecast today is as good as the four day forecast ten years ago is as good as the three day forecast twenty years ago. Um, what that functionally means over my lifetime is the kind of two day you know, forecast in the, in the 80s, you know, is now the five or six day forecast, um, which is remarkable. And that's a, that's a really, that, that's a, has resulted, you know, I mean, there are extremes like with Sandy where you have a really accurate eight day forecast with a hurricane, but generally speaking on a Monday, you kind of know what the weather is going to be over the weekend um, in, mo- in most places. Um, how that came about, um, you know, it's an expansive story, but fundamentally, uh, you know, infrastructure is made by people. Um, infrastructure is a kind of human endeavor. Uh, and so while it seems to be this kind of, you know, giant, incomprehensible machine, um, it's in fact kind of put together by hand, um, essentially operated by hand. Um, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of math and algorithms kind of, you know, inside of it, but even those are kind of, you know, written and, and fine-tuned, you know, by hand. Um, and so when you talk about kind of, well, what, what's driving these improvements, you know, it means that the, uh, each successive instrument uh, on a satellite, um, you know, launched every few years is better than the last one launched a few years before it. Um, the ability to incorporate um, the observations from that instrument improves year by year. It's not just a given. It has to be kind of uh, assimilated, as the meteorologists say, into, the, into, the, into their computer models carefully. And then the part that I think that I kind of love the most and I think is the most successful um, is the way in which the models improve. Um, and there, there's a kind of basic sort of daily science experiment. Uh, you know, the great thing about weather models is a predictive tools is that you can um, build a model, uh, take the observations from today in, you know, let it spit out the forecast for the next few days. But you can also um, to, uh, tweak that model and then put uh, the observations not just from today in again, uh, but from all the previous days that you have observations in. Uh, and so you have this kind of incredible ability to improve uh, that every moment you are not only running it again against the you know ever increasing future, uh, but you also have all the data from the past uh, to, to to sort of train it as well. Um, so you have a kind of daily guess that is either confirmed or not, uh, and then you have this sort of ongoing effort on the part of a relatively small pool of people uh, to improve that guess each day and to continue to tweak it again and again and again. Um, with kind of overall results that are incredibly self-evident. You know, this, I mean, the, the sort of top line of a day a decade is remarkable, um, you know, with lots of sort of finer-grained things about the way they 
measure that and or the way in which you know we're predicting thunderstorms or predicting different kinds of uh, you know uh, ocean events or things like that. That was a huge aha for me. That was one of the things that really jumped out at me is this, the, the, the whole process of assimilation and the, the fact that you can essentially um, go back into the past and make your predictions, you know, test the models based on a very fine-grained measurements of today based on yesterday. Yeah, well, it's, a, it's a lot easier than a you know, presidential race where you can have a, you know, other predictive sciences you know, where you only have, you know, whatever it is, 46 presidential races, you know, with, with, with bad data from all of them, uh, you know, the weather, the weather, the advantage the weather has, um, while being incredibly complex is that it does come every day. Uh, and so you can, and, and is, and is different globally. So you have the kind of limitless ability to, 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 um, to have a hypothesis and then some, some verification or not, uh, of your, your hypothesized future. Yeah, that was that I hadn't really clicked to that, and I found that um, a, a fascinating part of the story, and what that that this interaction that happens between um, the the different um, individuals who have a particular specialty and want to have a you know have a particular hypothesis, a particular like new equation to add in. Can you describe a little bit about how you observe that process happening in, in sort of real life? Yeah. Um, in the world of weather modeling, or at least six or seven years ago when I was doing the, the bulk of the, the reporting for this book, um, there were kind of two games in town, two, um, and it was either either you focused on the Americans, uh, loosely around the National Weather Service, um, which have there's a big American model or a suite of American models, um, or you go and you look at the Euro, which is the kind of nickname for the, the model, the global weather model run out of the European Center for Medium Range Weather Forecasts, um, which at the time was in, in Reading, England. It's kind of been, been moving a little bit since then. Um, but the, um, the, the way it was quite striking to me how intimate that endeavor was on their part. Um, you know, there was, uh, it, what's one of the things that's special, one of the things that arguably makes the European model better than anyone else is the way in which they combine kind of operations with the with the research scientists um, together in one building, um, eating together in one cafeteria, um, you know, having lots of coffees together, you know, being 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 good 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 Europeans, um, and that was so. So my goal was to to kind of go both see how the model improves on a month to month and year to year basis. Um, so I timed my visit there with one of their quarterly review meetings, but then also see how it works on a kind of hourly or daily basis. Um, so I also um, did this kind of you know weird sort of hallucination, where I asked one of the people who kind of know who knows how the model works best to essentially watch it run, uh, to kind of open up the console on his desktop and explain to me as the like indicators are going by on a given Tuesday afternoon uh, what the model was doing, um, how it was going through these global these it, going through its steps to take in the observations from the atmosphere all over the Earth at from the most recent moments and then speculate what that might be over the next three to seven days and, and sort of spit that out quite precisely. Uh, and so that was a kind of, you know, that's, that's, it was a, the nearest way possible to kind of look under the hood, but also to very carefully kind of choose the kind of altitude with which I was watching it. You know, I didn't want to, I wasn't going to, you know, look at the code. I didn't want the weather forecast. I wanted something in between. I wanted some steps of the process, uh, as legible as I could make them. One of the, um, as you were in the book, as you described that, you can almost imagine being in the room. You know, you can get that that sense of what it's like for, uh, and in the cafeteria, how people sit down and have these conversations and, and sort of uh, and transfer ideas from one mind to the other. And as I went through the book, because um, you write a, it's a great sort of historical arc as well, but it struck me how um, this is so much a story of of collective intelligence. Mm -hmm. of um, an enormously complex system being broken down and, uh, and a combination of um, algorithms and massive compute and um, people and science and uh, um, competition between, mm -hmm. different, between different elements um, coming together to actually really advance something that gives uh, it has huge utility around the world. And... Um, it's, 
it was I think one of the things that really grabbed me about the book is that it and the story overall is this long arc of that journey and how it takes um, uh, there's almost an institution there are institutions around this not just the physic not just the institutions of the National Weather Service but the institutions of how of science of how people communicate uncertainty and of how and how different um, uh, norms sort of evolve over time and um, I'm curious as how you how you look back on um, the, the the research that you did and put it in today's context and thinking about how like the, it, it's a story it's a good story of optimism about what humans can do when you're when you've got one particular goal which is to like make the weather forecast better I, I'm sort of trying to pull out um, the the thing that makes me the most curious which is how did you reflect on on the way this whole system actually evolved and and works and 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 how it works today versus where it might work tomorrow? Yeah, um, well, there are a few things to think about there. One is that the book was essentially reported uh, reported in the end of the Obama administration and written in the um, first half of the Trump administration, and so in the background uh, of a kind of understanding of, of international cooperation uh, of a uh, international scientific project, um, which the, which weather meteorology utterly is uh, of uh, privatization of American institutions um, of the functioning of government. I mean, all, all of these kind of themes that are kind of in there, uh, was up against the backdrop of the of the early years. Uh, really, or uh, the book was I finished in uh, finished writing December two thousand eighteen. So really, two full years of of that. Um, and so, yeah. So I was thinking a lot about the ways in which um, the U.S. in particular in the years since World War II really kind of went on uh, a kind of amazing both international and technological run, uh, and that's explicit in the kind of story of meteorology. Uh, you know, I, I love um, when you the the JFK speech, the man on the moon speech, uh, putting a man on the moon is like bullet point two, uh, launching a weather satellite is like bullet point five. You know, you no know, one, everyone forgets about the the weather satellite part, um, but it was completely part and parcel of um, of a vision of of technological and and political supremacy and power um, that resulted. Um, you know that that was you know that 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 was successful in meteorology. Uh, that that sort of did create the systems and the government or systems and the scientific and, and the government structures um, that have that sort of set the stage for the kind of improvement we're talking about. Um, so I think I think that's you know so for me a lot of you know those the success of that was uh, uh, was very much um, you know a, a, a global effort um, but but really epitomized in so many ways um, the 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 space age. Um, you know, and and the kind of technological run of the last fifty years, um, which, as I was writing in two thousand seventeen, two thousand eighteen, uh, did feel um, you know elements of that felt under threat in certain ways. Do you have any thoughts about where this goes? I mean, I'm thinking about the arc of weather forecasting. You mentioned, you know, the two day forecasts in the eighties. I'm remembering my sort of earliest, most formative. Um, relationship with weather forecasting was at my family's summer home in Maine, and we had a we had a little uh, a little radio box, and it was dedicated to the weather, and it had to, you had to put up the antenna, and I remember it was it was tan, and it had a really orange button, and you had to hit the orange button to hear the the weather coming through from a a guy, and I don't know where he was, but man, he had the thickest Maine accent, and he'd take you from Kennebunkport all the way up the coast mm-hmm. and give you all the all the weather. And that was a thing that we had to do before we went out on the boat right. at any time because right. you had to be able to get at least – and that was good enough, you know, like we weren't going out for multiple days. This was small, you know, watercraft kind of stuff. So, you know, um, you but you had to go listen to that and got to make sure you knew what the weather was going to do because at least in the next few hours while you were out, you had to be able to anticipate that. Now we've gotten to so much more level of sophistication. Obviously, I can just mm-hmm. pull up my phone and look at it. But where does this go? Like, uh, I'm thinking, I mean, it, 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 do we have the ability to? Do you, do you think we have the ability to continue to make? You know, today's six day forecast is going to be. You know, it, it, someday it's going to be 16 days. Or is there some other way that we experience these forecasts? I, I, and I know I'm asking you for the sort of the impossible of forecasting the future. Yeah. But um, uh, 
I guess right. since you wrote a book on forecasting, <laughs> right. I get to ask. Um, well, there are a few <laughs> things to, to pick out there. Um, one, I mean, the, the kind of where we are today, you know, in comparison, it's a good point of contrast. You know, if you're friends with any surfers, you know that they are, you know, uh, very, they're tuned into their own sort of special apps that are themselves plugged into the same, you know, weather models that I'm, that I'm writing about. Uh, but it's like, well, okay, you know, at four o'clock, the swell is going to start, you know, and the wind, you know, is going to be from this direction at precisely this mile per hour. Uh, and therefore the conditions are going to be good. Uh, and oh, by the way, I'm going to know that four days in advance. Um, and that's, that's a kind of, you know, that is a remarkable leap, uh, that is incredibly useful to them. Obviously there are many, you know, there are, there are many examples of the way in which that, the precision of that forecast is useful. So I, so when I, when I think about that, when I think about kind of where we're going, where, you know, how much better the forecast could get, one of the things that I take from the meteorologists, and I say the meteorologists as a distinct kind of species from the weather modelers, from the kind of physicists who build the models, but from but when I say meteorologists, I'm talking about the people who are forecasting the weather for us, you know, a kind of actionable forecast, not a kind of mathematical forecast. And in that case, uh, a forecast is only as good as the decisions you can make with it. Uh, so a, um, you know, the kind of archetypal example, which I love and I write about in the book is, you know, if you, if you're having a party and you want to decide whether or not to rent a tent, uh, then, you know, when do you need to make that decision and, and how, and how, how sure do you need to be of that decision? Um, and, you know, and as I, I quote the, the famous folks at the European center, you know, if the, if the queen is coming to your party, you need to be more sure of that decision than if, you know, any your friends are coming to that party. And so then you're talking about a, you know, perhaps a three or four day, you know, forecast where that you really want to make sure it's going to rain or not. Um, you know, then if you're running an airline, you have a different set of operations, you know, different set of decisions to make. Um, if you're planning a wedding six months in advance, yes, it would be nice to know which day it will be raining and which day it won't be. Uh, that's obviously not happening. Um, you know, uh, 10 days in advance, though, we're starting to get in the ballpark. You know, we kind of, you know, at the moment, even this winter, we've had no snow in New York this winter. Um, but you know, a week, eight days before uh, I was taking a flight, I'm you know in February. It's worth looking to see if there's some disturbance out there, uh, and that becomes pretty clear. Um, and you know, it's kind of wild to think about you know, you know making a personal decision for that, not based on um, you know not based on a, on a day's notice or two days' notice, but based on five or six days' notice, uh, and what this what the stakes might be for that. So how, how do we get there? Well, I guess the first question is, how far do you want to go? Uh, you know, what, what is really useful? I mean, obviously, a 10-day forecast for a hurricane with a great deal of confidence would be useful. Um, people won't really necessarily act on it or believe it until much closer. Um, but I think we've, we're already kind of, you know, frequently making, you know, decisions based on, on that kind of forecast. And then you, and you, you don't really have, I mean, you have limits of computation, you have limits of observation. Um, the kind of you know, chaos theory is not really the limit. You know, we kind of like to think that, oh, it's impossible to predict, but that, that does not seem to be the limiting factor. We're kind of sort of, we've pushed through that already. Um, but you do have sort of the basics of, well, if you're sampling a, a certain certain uh, you know, um, resolution of the atmosphere and that there are inaccuracies, you know, inherent to that. Um, but regardless of kind of how far you go with that, it's really just like, well, it can't just be a math problem. I mean, it's an interesting math problem. It's a good math problem. But it has to be useful to someone. Um, for it to be useful, it has to have a certain confidence. Um, or you need an entire social science that builds up around it that is about decision-making, um, that's about helping uh, emergency managers um, understand uh, what this is useful for, you know, when, you know, how, when they should be actually doing something actionable with a, a seven- or eight-day weather forecast um, or a more dramatic one- or two- or three-day forecast. It's one of the uh, the areas where I, I think we sort of, uh, you know, came to the subject around uh, uh, the role of artificial intelligence is part of the commonality is expressing uncertainty and expressing it in a, in a way that you that you help people make decisions based not on just the prediction but also the uncertainty around prediction. And there's almost mm -hmm. a little lab around weather forecasting to 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 look at um, different ways to present uncertainty and get different reactions from people, and it it certainly feels like that we're still struggling to sort of understand um, how to position um, and how to how to convey uncertainty in different different ways, because and especially with with weather being 
a little bit, it mean, it seems more volatile and people's reactions seem more volatile because expectations around um, how many hurricanes or how many, how many natural um, uh, events that are driven by weather, it, it, that people's expectations have changed because of climate change as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, uh, I'm interested in, in what you've reflected on in terms of the, the, this intersection of, of social science and um, using artificial intelligence to um, have smarter, more dynamic um, interfaces with, with either the, the meteorologists or the emergency managers or right through to citizens about how to frame and help people understand that uncertainty. I mean, it's, it's, it's very tricky. It's very consequential. I mean, I, the, there was this, this major storm in Buffalo in December, major snowstorm in Buffalo, New York, um, was a kind of particularly tragic example. where The weather forecast was really good. Um, but there's some kind of threshold by which the people of Buffalo who are used to a lot of snow, uh, kind of tune it out, um, and sort of breaking through and saying, this is that, you know, this is that, you know, 10, you know, 10th, you know, you know, this is, this is the really, this is the time when you actually do have to stay home, um, rather than run to the store, um, uh, didn't, didn't happen, you know, so that dozens of people that died. So kind of doing the things that they would do on a regular snowy night, um, without grasping that this was not a regular snowy night. Um, and did the, the forecast kind of, you know, on paper was, was correct, um, but was not, was not received, uh, with the danger, um, that, that, it, that it actually presented. Um, and so that was pretty dramatic. So I, so I kind of, you know, that's, that's an incredible, you know, there's so much, I mean, I, I like the example because there's so much baked into it. You know, it's like, if you don't have four wheel drive cars, you know, you people have a different attitude, you know, if you. You know, if you're talking about, you know, if you're not, if you're not in Buffalo and this storm is coming, it's a completely different attitude. Uh, you know, if the, you know, there's just so many different things um, that kind of go into the, you know, you know, is the, is it, is it, was it, if people are watching TV, do they hear it differently than if they're, have their weather radio versus if they're looking at their app, you know, are the apps putting in the right kind of signals uh, and warnings? Um, you know, we've all had the experience, I think, of, of seeing a, a kind of absurd warning uh, that's automatically generated that makes no sense. Um, sometimes those, the, in, you know, the classic example in New York city is a sort of flash flood warning. Um, you know, it's always, always, you know, everyone kind of chuckles when a flash flood warning comes through here. And, you know, we did have that experience a couple of years ago of, of, of the same thing of real catastrophic neighborhood flooding where, where people died, um, you know, where you couldn't cross the street. Um, you know, that was absolutely, um, out of the, uh, so far out of past experience, um, that, that it was a warning that was unheeded, you know, um, because, and it was so far out of past experience was because, because it, you know, broke records by two X, uh, ostensibly because of new climatic extremes. Um, so, I mean, there's an example where the technical system of the forecast, um, is exactly right. Um, because the weather models don't care about climate change. They take the amount of moisture in the atmosphere and calculate that forward. Uh, they're not constrained as human meteorologists are by past experience, uh, but um, humans are constrained, constrained by past experience, and so again, have a perfectly technical, good technical forecast, but do not act on that um, with with deadly consequences. Um, so these are, you know, the collision of this I think is really fascinating. Uh, a very sort of, uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a narrow but specific thread in the broader conversation about AI, uh, but I think is really I think is really interesting. Oh, I think it's very interesting, and it is a. Um, you're right. It is narrow, but it also it's it's something that everyone experiences. So it is a universal experience. I mean, n- no one goes through modern, you know, at least digitally connected life without having some form of conversation about the mm-hmm. weather forecast. You know, it's going to come up, and it's getting more dramatic. But we live in a world now where the more and more AI that's coming into our lives, what are we getting flooded with? We're getting flooded with predictions because um, at least most, we're having this conversation about generative AI being different, but most you know, AI systems, you know, that what they're doing is they're predicting. And so what happens from that prediction is what question, what judgments do we as humans make from that prediction and then what actions do mm-hmm. we take from those judgments? And what you've, you've studied and covered and written about now is sort of this history of that. Right as the journey of weather forecasting became much more sophisticated, became longer form, um, there was longer predictions. People have experienced the fact that well, all the weather forecasters always wrong. And what's interesting is even with that history, so right, it, it people still don't understand that a forecast will be wrong some percentage of the time. It is a prediction, 
And you could be right 90% of the time, and the only thing people are going to forecast, remember, is the 10% that you were wrong. You said it was going to rain, and it didn't, right? And so we still haven't adjusted, even on this one thing that we all universally experience, we haven't really adjusted to the fact that the machine's making a prediction that will hopefully be generally correct, but it will be wrong at some point, and we 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 can't get that through our heads very well. Well, we're not we're we're not privy in at least in you know, on our basic apps. We're not privy to confidence. You know, the the apps don't sort of tell us. Yes. And and there's a real uh, there's a real divide. I see this between as a as a you know taking my weather app seriously as a weather underground user. I don't know if any of you you know this is like the more finely grained one. Compared to the the stock, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh exactly. Right. Compared to this, right. <laughs> right. every morning she starts by looking at, it, but then she she reads the entire scientific right. discussion, you know, every morning. So I, I have a cycle of somewhere between, I mean, winter more than summer, but somewhere yeah. between six and nine tabs slash apps <laughs> that I have to go through before I, you know, can start the day. Because I got to triangulate right. these things. Well, yes. so there's a great example: the scientific discussion, which I which I have spent a lot of time with, and, and actually I confess I don't I don't look at it any anymore. <laughs> but but the but that's so fascinating because you have the you know you have the weather underground, which is essentially is a its own algorithm sitting on top of the global weather models. You know, so the the weather company is kind of you know post processing, as they say. You know, and fine-tuning the output of the global weather models for your specific location and perhaps kind of clipping the edges, you know, making it just seem a little bit, taking the extremes off a little bit, you know, kind of doing things that they've determined um, people kind of receive better. Um, and then the this sort of Apple weather app or whatever it is is going to even clip that even more. It's going to kind of smush out, you know, if, it's, if, the, if the models say it's going to start raining at 2 o'clock, you know, the app will say it's going to rain between one and three, you know, just kind of sort of, you know, leaving a lot of, of, of specificity out uh, with the hope of, of not being as wrong. Um, but the scientific discussion is totally separate from that because that's still the human meteorologists of the National, for the National Weather Service who are looking at these, uh, looking at the outputs of the models, not looking at the weather underground system, which is, again, sits on top of that, and then doing their kind of own determinations. Um, and... For years, especially in the early years that I was that I was thinking about this, I was um, I kind of I would shudder every time the human meteorologists in scientific discussion would essentially second guess the models, um, would sort of say, well, the you know the models aren't a forecast, and I'm going to you know kind of redo the work of the models and you know tweak that accordingly. Um, that's changed um, over the last decade, um, and you know they are less likely to do that uh, because the models they they have more faith in the models than they used to. But again, you still have the sort of human decision-making component of it. Uh, you still have the very specific kind of, you know, cultural, you know, contextual, you know, what, you know, a, you know, a forecast for the night before Thanksgiving is going to be, have a different, you know, different tone than the forecast uh, for a random Tuesday, um, you, know, couple, you know, two weeks later. Uh, and that's, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, a lot of human communication involved in that. Um, which is which is now, given the success of the technical system, um, can be thought of distinctly from the from the from the technical forecast itself, if you might call it. Um, and there's an effort on the part of meteorologists to begin to tease those apart, um, but it's taken a while, um, and it's taken uh, you know it's it's it, it required sort of um, you know eating a bit of crow with it and sort of recognizing that their their kind of the meteorologists hold on the technical forecast. Um, is perhaps reasonably ceded to the machines, um, or rather to their colleagues who make the machines rather than themselves. Well, I've noticed in, in my obsessive reading of the scientific discussion that um, uh, there's been a significant shift even in the last few years to talk much more about um, convergence in the models, which model the outcome they're favouring. Um, it's, and it's gone much more European in the last couple of years. Um, and to talk much more about, in fact, I think it's quite recent, um, uh, much more about extreme indexes. Uh, this is going to be a 80 to 90% precipitation that's on the index of, um, as a way of communicating that this is something that's out of the ordinary. And it's almost, um, it's almost seemed reading the discussion that that has become totally embraced, 
Like it's a, it's great now that we can have these, we can communicate these indexes in, in that way. Um, but it's still amusing to, because uh, they put their names at the end, you know, who it is. And uh, You're a every, seri- you are a serious student of this. Uh, I, I'm, I'm I, impressed. I, yes. I, I've got, I know these guys. Mm-hmm. Right, I know right. it. And, and which, some of which, them are funnier than others. Which weather office is it? Uh, Pendleton okay. in Oregon. Okay. And uh, so, we, you know, that it's it's east side of the Cascades. It's a pretty big warning area because it's kind of mm-hmm. like Washington all the way through to, like, southern Oregon um, on the east side of the Cascades. And there's some places where there's, um, I would say, weather hotspots, right? So you've got the passes. And you're right, there's still a lot of different communication on at the beginning of the season for winter. You know, the, the warnings have a slightly different... Um, flavor to them if people aren't used to snow versus at the end. Um, and there's weather hotspots like the Columbia Gorge, it's going to be windy, or um, uh, Interstate 84, you know, when that gets a big dump of snow in eastern Oregon. There's a, there's a lot of extra warnings. But, um, yeah, I kind of get to know their humor. There's, there's definitely – so I've taken some screenshots of the more amusing – <laughs> but you know, they, they, there's there's been a significant shift in the in the what ten years that I've been reading that uh, to 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 explain um, uncertainty, to talk about the models, to talk about how the models are converging or not, um, to to talk much more about confidence in the forecast at particular times. So it's um, I, I like mm-hmm. watching this evolution. So then you have, I mean, I think of the people for whom that's most actionable. You know, not. Not you know driver you know through through the through the gorge, um, but then of course the road crews you know who are you know trying to you know how on a, on an hour you know hour by hour basis or day by you know daily basis trying to figure out what kind of staffing they need what kind of equipment they need um, how to how to kind of keep you know how to how to respond to to what's about to come and then and then the kind of you know if it's if it's really dumping if there's a kind of you know for half an hour you know between. You know, rather than you know an hour that it was expected, that's 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 bad. That's really consequential for 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 travelers in the gorge, you know, for example. So I think yeah, yeah, no, it's I mean the discussions the discussions though are still a kind of they've become a bit of an artifact. I I, I, I wonder who the who the primary audience is perceived to be for, for when they write. Them. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, <laughs> crazy, saying- crazy ladies like this one. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I, I, so I, I, a different question. Um, away from I'm not that crazy. Now, my, come on. my weather nerdy wife um, is uh, um, uh, everywhere you look right now. Conversation about AI, um, and I'm wondering if there are any sort of broader lessons that you think there are to take from this weather forecasting stuff, not just about the models and improvement, but especially around what we're talking about here, which is that sort of human interaction, right? So there's a layer where, as you say, people take take it out and through Apple, you know, or something like that, they're trying to make it be as um, correct as possible without necessarily being as specific. There's other places mm-hmm. where they're trying to be extremely specific. Like I would imagine in the surf forecast, they're really going for specificity, right? This is this is what the swell will be like at four o'clock, you know, on Tuesday. Um, and for some of that, I can you know I can imagine that's pretty helpful. Like if you want to time Mavericks, you got a much better window for that these days than you did you know thirty years and, ago. And sell subscriptions to your app for five dollars a month or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, totally. exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean yeah. We, we pay for snowforecast.com, yeah. which is the same as Surf, same interface. Same, it looks same exactly idea. the yeah. same. Yeah. It's just one snow and one's waves. Right. But then you have these layers of people interpreting, right? You have the one layer which is I'm going to help you understand where I think the predictions are coming out of the model, and that's the sort of scientific discussion. You've got the you've got the societal thing, the governmental thing. The the, the, the folks who are thinking about you know disaster preparedness, you've got the individual people. Is there? Do you have any thoughts about how to sort of take this this ecosystem that you've studied so closely and make it a, a broader statement about how to think about AI? Well, okay, so I, I've been holding this back, but I feel like it's time for me now to confess that I am like the worst person about AI. I'm like I'm not interested. I'm like think it's boring. I, I'm just like I I'm like I there's I, I was going to say thank you. Welcome yeah, to the podcast. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm teasing, but I I just I all, you know, when everybody went nuts in November or December, it just doesn't interest me. Like what's wrong with me? Why do I not like why just like I don't I just don't get it. Um, and as someone who is professionally engaged with trying to understand technology. Um, so I kind of so I sort of like 
and partly because it just I, I in my defense <laughs> or to justify that I, I'm 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 fascinated by people. You know, like that is as a that is a sort of fundamental thing of a journalist. Fundamental thing of trying to 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 write about the complexity of the world is to is to be fascinated by 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 that complexity, which is so often rooted in in people. Um, so, so yes, yeah, so as I think about kind of you know, the possibilities for AI with this. You know, I, as much as I love the predict, you know, the the success of the weather models and prediction, and I, you know, they are not AI by any stretch. Um, you know, there are there is some movement towards pushing them in that direction, which I frankly actually don't really understand. And it's often it's just kind of like around the edges. I think, you know, it's like, well, what if we make you know these calculations a little fuzzier, and you know, we let the we let the system kind of figure itself out. You know, rather than tell it precisely what to do, then that that could generate a sort of better outcome in some form or another. <clears throat> but from a communication standpoint, I mean, you know, we're still, you know, yeah, there's got to be something between, you know, telling the system to put a sun icon or a rain icon, um, or like the three gradations in between, um, versus the nuance of a human forecaster who might even know the uh, you know road crew dispatcher who is reading the forecast on the other end of the, other end of the line. Um, yeah, there's got to be something in the middle there. There's there's certainly room for the kind of you know the kinds of complex problems that airlines face. Um, there's certainly room for there. But but I, I again I I kind of I, this is just me being a bit grudgingly. But I'm like I I don't really have a full grasp of where that goes from a algorithm as we kind of know them more specifically and something more self generative in the way that we talk about AI. Like I, I don't really. I don't really understand that that threshold, um, particularly for technical things. Um, you know, for the kinds of emotional things we've been seeing with Genervine more recently, uh, it, you know, yes, obviously that, that gets a little creepy. Um, but again, <laughs> to be a bit curmudgeonly with it, it's like, this is just like, this is like a bad conversation. It's just like, it's just like what, it's like, this is, this is like a machine approximating, you know, what is less interesting than, than any given human conversation in my in my opinion, anyway. I think that it's a lot of the parallel is, is is these social science aspects of how people respond to uncertainty, and um, looking mm-hmm. at how people respond to uncertainty and you know uh, other uh, AI driven um, predictions, whether it's like I don't know some sort of recommender or a medical diagnosis or you know these kinds of applications that we're starting to actually get quite a lot of um, research out of. You know, um, and understanding how that translates into um, how consumers might be able to um, make better decisions based on their own context and on the forecast itself. I can see that parallel. I can also see learning back the other way. It struck me, uh, we've been, we're deep in this whole um, GPT world at the moment just because you kind of have to be. And... There's very little that's making me feel particularly optimistic. If anything, this is forcing me into much more of a pessimistic mind frame, mindset around AI. Of its, of its usefulness or its consequence? Its consequence is based on who owns it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, but the, the, and you, you think about how the – one way of thinking about how this technology develops is to say, well um, – is to follow that line of, of technical development, societal development, regulation, data privacy. And then you look at how effectively we've managed to regulate that, and the answer is not very effectively at all. So that doesn't bode well for um, uh, some sort of societal reaction or ability to control these giant language models, large language models, and how they're used in more nefarious ways, for example. But the, um, the weather machine actually does give a, a, a good example of where humans have taken, I mean, there's only a handful now of global models and actually are making it work for good. Now, there's no agency inside the models. They aren't AI in the same way. But they... Um, the 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 collective intelligence of the humans and machines together and the way that humans are working and the the commitment to um, not just the hard physics 
and atmospheric science, but also the commitment to the social science of how meteorologists are changing their behaviours as as these um, uh, predictions become more granular, become more extreme, and watching how humans respond to that in the context of their lives. There's almost a little, like a little lab of positivity there, um, that they, we can work together. With, with a, a huge caveat, and I'm not sure if this is where you were deliberately going with it, um, but, but with a huge caveat that the, the models and the forecasts we, as we primarily know it today um, is, have been public endeavors, have been the work of governments and the work of governments cooperating. Mm-hmm. Um, we are at the early stages of a new era of, of the privatization of those weather models. And there's a lot of hype around this. Um, a lot of folks who are uh, essentially taking the existing models and existing observation infrastructure, global observation infrastructure, and adding a gloss on it um, that is uh, offering a slight improvement, perhaps. Um, it's not verified in the same way, so we kind of don't we don't really know how, you know, it's hard to kind of measure that precisely. I mean, the Weather Underground app is a, great, is a sort of basic example of that, it takes the weather model output and kind of gives a little bit of a shine to it in the way that is most useful to everyday, you know, people who are looking at the forecast for, for, for sort of everyday reasons. Um, but yeah, but then you have um, a sort of new crop of folks who are either using proprietary weather observations, um, either from sensors and cars, uh, from their own private satellites. You know, weather satellites have been things that governments fly um, and where the data is, as a matter of course, exchanged globally. Um, if you have a proprietary weather satellite company, that's not a given to the same extent. Um, and so you have a new set of you have companies that are, are leveraging new observations, um, leveraging some type of new, I mean, again, you can insert your word, algorithm, AI, model, whatever it is. Uh, fundamentally, they're all kind of interfacing with the global, with the, the global models as we've been discussing them. But um, what you have as well is, is a business opportunity. Um, you have a, an era of extreme weather um, that is you know, making it potentially profitable uh, to sell better weather forecasts or more carefully ta- tailored weather forecasts. Um, where it gets tricky, of course, um, well, t- two reasons, two, two ways. One, you have um, the kind of, you know, s- you know kind of cracking of this global infrastructure of public good that has been very painstakingly assembled in the last 50 years. Um, so that's kind of a, you know, it's a kind of philosophical concern. Uh, you know, it's, and then the second um, a sort of moral concern is that you very, you very likely and very immediately have um, better weather forecasts for people who are willing or can pay for them. Um, and in an era of climactic extremes, um, you, you kind of already do have this. You know, you have, you know, the ability, uh, you know, for, for, you know, rich people to evacuate before poor people because they have their information sooner. Um, and, and that's like, that's not a particularly abstract thing. That's a pretty, pretty literal thing. Um, it, like everything is tied up in all sorts of other, uh, all sorts of other, other considerations. Um, but fundamentally you, you know, the entire history of meteorology has been a, has been as a public science. Um, and we're just at the very beginnings of it as, uh, as a, as a, as a private technology. So I, we're coming to the end here, but I did want to ask you, um, what are you? What can you tell us about what you're working on now? What's What's fascinating you now about humanity <laughs> and uh, yeah? Uh, where Where are you? What are you working on? Uh, it's a great question. Um, a, a couple different threads of things. Um, one which I haven't I haven't sort of talked about publicly much, but I've spent a lot of the last year uh, working with the folks at the Engine, which is MIT's venture capital firm, um, essentially as a storyteller for some of their their climate tech companies. Um, and, um, that very much came out of the kind of my, just the recognition that climate tech as a genre has an incredible amount of things happening, many of which are not yet quite baked, you know, are still kind of in the future. Um, but it wanted me, it, it sort of pushed me towards wanting to participate more than observe. Um, it pushed me towards sort of, sort of come, stepping up, uh, you know, into, these projects rather than sort of away from them, uh, as with that, with the journalistic move. Um, so that's been, been absolutely fascinating. Uh, and their, their portfolio company and some of the folks I've gotten to work with on to tell their stories, you know, it's, you know, it's cancer drugs, you know, one day and, you know, new kinds of steel, another, uh, you know, and, um, you know, and, uh, another, you know, wire battery charging a third, you know, all sorts of crazy things. Um, so that's, that's been, that's, that kind of got me thinking about the, the things we're building at the moment, um, and then also brought me back um, 
to uh, the topic that seems would would seem uh, inevitable for an infrastructure writer, um, which is we are ostensibly and uh, it's a little bit cloudy still. We kind of there's still a lot of static in the way that we see it, but we're ostensibly living through this inc- you know this this you know you know uh, once in a century infrastructural revolution with the energy transition in some form or another, um, and it, we that is still it's still kind of it's still diffuse. It's still sort of overwhelmed by a discussion of climate as a scientific thing, um, rather than decarbonization as a infrastructure project. Um, those two things I think are very convoluted with each other. Um, even as, as I, as we talk now with the, the IPCC report yesterday, um, it's all about climate science. Um, it strikes me that there, you know, this is an infrastructure problem at this point. Um, and it's a, you know, and that infrastructure is much more, uh, my topic than, than climate science. Um, and they're totally intertwined at the moment. So I, I have been, been thinking hard about how to tell that story of the energy transition, um, you know, and the way in which, uh, you know, the way in which it is unevenly distributed, you know, as, as so many kind of forward-looking things are, uh, and trying to understand, um, you know, it, would it be possible to see it as complete in some places in a way that's instructive um, toward understanding how it is incomplete um, or behind schedule in other places? Well, that is an entirely separate episode, if not an entire series that we could embark with you on, given the fact that both of us spent time, uh, quite a lot of time in the energy space and in the, what was, uh, you know, the original clean tech wave, um, of innovation long time ago. Well, thank you very much for joining us. This was a, a heck of a lot of fun and, uh, I'm looking forward to, um, Helen pulling up the scientific discussion and reflecting on this conversation as she's reading the uh, the scientific forecast every morning now. Well, I wouldn't read it if it wasn't useful. Exactly. They're actually pretty good. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, thank you very much. It was been, it's been a great pleasure yeah, to talk likewise. to you. Likewise. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe on Substack or your favorite podcast platform. And please leave a positive rating or comment Sharing your positive feedback helps us reach more people and connect them with the world's great minds. Seriously, a review on Apple Podcasts is a big deal. And if you like how we think, then contact us about our speaking and workshops and human-centered product design. You can learn more about us at GetSonder.com, and you can contact us at hello at GetSonder.com. You can learn more about making better decisions in our book, Make Better Decisions, How to Improve Your Decision-Making in the Digital Age. The book is an essential guide to practicing the cognitive skills needed for making better decisions in the age of data, algorithms, and AI. Please check it out at mbd.zone, on Amazon, bookshop.org, or place an order through your favorite local bookstore.